Welcome to part three of The Curious Case of Mr. Zabo, presented by Wrestling History Mysteries. My name is Al Getz, the rogue wrestling historian behind Charting the Territories and lead detective on the case. Part one of The Curious Case of Mr. Zabo, released in September, introduced us to the masked wrestler, billed as Mr. Zabo, who wrestled for Leroy McGurk in February and March of 1963, then disappeared suddenly after suffering a broken hand in a match with Lou Thez. I discussed everything we know about this mass wrestler and formed a profile to try and identify potential suspects. One suspect in particular stood out, Anton Ripper Leone. Part 2, released in October, went into detail about Ripper Leone and why, if he was indeed Mr. Zabo, this story became way more fascinating. Be sure to listen to both Part 1 and Part 2 to get up to speed on how this wrestling history mystery has developed so far. In Part 3, we will discuss two more suspects in the case, both of whom were presented to me by respected wrestling historians. While I believed all along that neither of them could be seriously considered, part of my process in solving this mystery was not just determining who it was, but also determining who it wasn't. One of the ways we can narrow down the field is to eliminate as many potential candidates as possible. And this month, I will explain why it absolutely, positively could not have been Danny Hodge or Argentina Zuma. Wrestling historian David Baker had a theory, and it was a pretty wild one. But given that the world of professional wrestling is pretty wild in and of itself, no theory is too wild as to be impossible. So let's discuss why David thought it may have been Danny Hodge, and then we will dig deeper and prove that it wasn't him. In the 1990s, when I followed professional wrestling obsessively through newsletters, magazines, and the message forums prevalent in the early days of the internet, I learned something shocking. Sometimes wrestlers would work on a show twice, once under a mask, and then once as a completely different character, either without the mask or perhaps even as two different mask gimmicks. In independent promotions in the Carolinas, wrestlers might work as a masked Thunderfoot early in the show and then come back later as themselves. A few years later in the Northeast, Tom Brandy would wrestle twice, once as himself and once as the masked Patriot. How commonplace was this, and if so, does it mean that Mr. Zabo could have been a wrestler who was also wrestling for Leroy McGurk at the time as himself? The most honest answer I can give you is this. While anything is possible, it's unlikely. As a general rule of thumb, in the territorial era, the main wrestling promotions would not employ a wrestler to work two different gimmicks at the same time. But there are exceptions including two in Leroy McGurk's territory. Tretch Phillips wrestled as a mass wrestler billed as El Diablo in some towns in 1969, while at the same time in other towns he would wrestle as himself. 
This only lasted for a couple of weeks before he started using the Diablo gimmick throughout the territory. A few years later, after wrestler Vic Mueller lost loser-leave town matches in some cities in the territory, he returned as the masked Rossitani. Mueller's real name was Vic Rossitani, while still wrestling unmasked as Vic Mueller in the rest of the territory. Now, in that particular case, fans were supposed to know that Rossitani and Mueller were one of them the same. It was similar to Junkyard Dog as Dagger Lee or Dusty as the Midnight Rider. But again, it's at least evidence that it might be possible for a wrestler to portray two different gimmicks in the same territory at the same time. However, there is no evidence that a wrestler in a major territory in the 60s or 70s portrayed two different characters on the same show for any extended period of time. If Danny Hodge was indeed the masked Mr. Zabo, that would mean he regularly wrestled twice on the same night in the same town, once as one of the top babyface stars in the promotion, and once as a masked heel wrestler who was being pushed as a main eventer. It's interesting to note that Hodge and Zabo never wrestled against one another, which could lend credence to this theory. The most interesting part of David's theory is this. When Luthez came to the territory in early March of 1963 for one week, he wrestled Danny Hodge every single night except the final night, March 11th in Tulsa, when Lou wrestled Mr. Zabo. And after the last match between Thez and Hodge on March 9th in Joplin, Missouri, Hodge disappears and can't be placed anywhere until late April. Recall that the reason Mr. Zabo left the territory was because he suffered a broken hand in his second match with Thez on March 25th. I originally speculated that whoever Mr. Zabo was, he wouldn't have been able to wrestle anywhere for at least a month after this injury. So the fact that Hodge doesn't show up anywhere for about a month after the 25th is either a coincidence or evidence. The first question I ask myself is this. Does it make sense that Danny Hodge would work as a masked heel in this territory? Honestly, it doesn't make much sense on the surface, but you can always convince yourself of an explanation to support a theory. Much in the same way I was able to build a narrative around the possibility that Mr. Zabo was Anton Leone that would explain how he was able to get a world title shot despite not being in the good graces of the NWA, we can envision a scenario here. Hodge had been the top babyface star of the territory dating back to early 1960. With a few exceptions where he left the area to go somewhere else for a couple of months at a time, he had been here constantly since his pro debut in October 1959. Perhaps the idea was to do something different with him to change things up. We can also see they may have wanted him to gain some experience working a rougher style. When traveling world champions go to other territories, they often play the role of a subtle heel. So perhaps this was done to give Hodge a reason to try out a different ring style for some of his traveling defenses of the NWA World Junior Heavyweight title. But let's be clear, Mr. Zaba was a true heel, not a subtle heel. So it doesn't really make sense, but again, we're just trying to see if it's plausible. At face value, without digging too deep, it's certainly possible, albeit unlikely, that Hodge was the masked Mr. Zabo. So how can we prove it wasn't him? There are two possible ways, and I set out on both paths. The first was to see if I could find specific dates where Hodge wrestled in one town and Mr. Zabo 
wrestled in another. While we can certainly explain him wrestling twice in the same town on the same night, it would be virtually impossible for him to be in two places at the same time. Danny Hodge was good, but not that good. The other path would be to see if I could uncover Hodge's whereabouts between March 10th and late April. The historical record of wrestling is incomplete, and in particular there are a few black holes where not a lot of info is known. Could he have been in Gulf Coast? Could he have been in New Zealand? Could he have been feuding with the great power Udi in Nigeria? Yes, I know Udi was born in 1962, but if you asked him, he would probably tell you that he started wrestling before he even learned how to crawl. One thing to keep in mind is that prior to my work with charting the territories, house show records for the McGurk Territory in the 1960s were rather incomplete. Over the last couple of years, I've uncovered thousands of house shows that weren't already part of the historical record. So digging deep through my records, I attempted to find instances of Hodge and Sabo wrestling in different towns on the same night. For the most part, they were booked in the same towns on the same nights, but there are three exceptions. On February 25th, Danny Hodge wrestled in Shreveport while Mr. Zabo wrestled in Tulsa. The next night, Hodge was in Monroe, Louisiana, while Sabo was in Little Rock. Six nights later, on March 5th, Hodge was again in Shreveport and Mr. Zabo was in Tulsa. In all three cases, Newspaper recaps of the shows confirm that Hodge and Zabo did indeed appear as advertised in the respective towns. So is this proof that Hodge couldn't have been Zabo? Maybe, maybe not. Is it possible that Hodge wrestled under the mask every other night except for these three where they put somebody else under the hood? If we're already accepting of the fact that Hodge was working double duty most every night, then we certainly can't exclude the possibility that they pulled a switcheroo for just those three nights. Again, it's highly unlikely, but not impossible. So we don't have a smoking gun just yet. Time to see if we can find Danny Hodge's whereabouts between March 10th and April 27th, which was Hodge's first match back after the absence. Danny Hodge was born in the small town of Perry, Oklahoma. Hodge is probably the most famous person born in Perry, whose population has hovered at right around 5,000 residents for the last eight decades. It's interesting to note that he's not the only professional wrestler to come from Perry. Current all-elite wrestling star and MMA fighter Jake Hager grew up in Perry as well. Jake wrestled in high school with Hodge's grandson while living two blocks away from Danny. On Monday, March 11, 1963, the Perry, Oklahoma Daily Journal reported that Hodge had been admitted to St. Francis Hospital in Tulsa for treatment and further examination of a liver ailment. He was dismissed from the hospital a week later, but an April 3rd article in the same paper said he had been idle since being released and was hopeful of getting back in action in about two weeks. It further states that he had been hospitalized for an attack of hepatitis. When he did return to the ring later, several articles promoting upcoming wrestling events mentioned this ailment as well. In Little Rock, the newspaper stated that Hodge's match against Mario Galento on May 14th would not be for Hodge's title as he had just recovered from hepatitis, and Leroy McGurk said he will not defend it until it is certain he has regained his peak. In Springfield, Missouri, it was again stated his match in that town on May 15th would be non-title, with Leroy stating it would not be fair to have Hodge risk his title so soon after recovering from a serious seven-week siege of hepatitis. 
So there is our smoking gun. Danny Hodge was in the hospital and recovering at home in the two-week period between his March 9th match against Luthez and the final Mr. Zabo appearance on March 25th in Tulsa. It's important to note that the articles in the Perry newspaper were not about upcoming pro wrestling shows. These were news items regarding a local resident. This was not an angle, not a storyline. This is proof that it could not have been Hodge. Though, if we want to be specific, it only proves that it could not have been Hodge after March 10th. But again, it was a wild theory to begin with, and there are enough holes in it that I can confidently cross Danny Hodge's name off the list of potential suspects. Now, let's move on to Argentina Zuma. Recall that in the closest thing to an official Luthez record book, which was compiled through the incredibly detailed research of Koji Miyamoto, the record book lists Lou's opponent on March 11th as Argentina Zuma and on March 25th as Shandor Sabo. When I was discussing this mystery with Tim Hornbaker, he asked Koji about this, and Koji was pretty firm in his belief that he had it right. So let's discuss why I was skeptical, and then we'll dig into the several months-long process of me attempting to irrefutably prove it could not have been Zuma. Argentina Zuma, real name Manuel Chage, C-H-A-I-J, was a Jack Pfeffer creation. In late 1959, Pfeffer got him booked in a program with Antonino Argentina Rocca, and the two drew over 20,000 fans on two consecutive shows in Madison Square Garden, with a third match drawing over 15,000. Zuma was, as best as I can tell, a career babyface, a small but athletic product of Argentina. Just a few months after the third Madison Square Garden match against Rocca, Zuma left Mid-Atlantic in late April 1960, and his career record goes completely blank until July of 65. It's possible he was wrestling as Mr. Zabo during this time. However, while there are other examples of a wrestler using the name Mr. Zabo in some small outlaw territories at times, the only appearance of him in a major territory is this brief 1963 run. It's possible that Zuma used a number of different mask gimmicks over that several-year period. If that was the case, honestly, it'd be almost impossible to prove. There are a couple of common-sense reasons why the theory of Argentina Zuma being Mr. Zabo doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Zuma had been a big draw as a babyface. Putting him under a mask and having him wrestling as a heel doesn't seem right. Doesn't mean it's impossible, but it just seems that if you had a babyface that sold out Madison Square Garden, you'd want to make sure the fans in Springfield, Missouri and Wichita Falls, Texas knew that they were going to get to see a New York star. Further, Koji's records on Luthez have his opponent on March 25th as Shandor Sabo. As I've mentioned previously, Shandor is 100% in Japan at that time, and it absolutely cannot be him. So I would say if the method by which Koji verified the March 11th record was the same by which he verified the March 25th record, then it must be considered suspect at best. Now, I want to be very clear. Koji Miyamoto is one of the most respected wrestling historians in the world, and with good reason. If he got 99.5% of Lou Thez's match listings right, he should be celebrated, rewarded, 
awarded, and commended, and he has been. But that also means that of Thez's thousands and thousands of matches, one half of 1% of them, numbering somewhere around a few dozen, would be incorrect. The first clue I had as to Zuma's whereabouts during this five-year time period came from some clippings when he wrestled for Leroy McGurk in the summer of 1965. On more than one occasion, there was a reference to Zuma having been retired in Argentina for a few years before returning to the ring. Now, just because an article in a newspaper says that under the guise of a wrestling, you know, preview, doesn't mean that it's true. But it's a clue. And if it was true... Perhaps we can prove that Zuma was indeed retired in Argentina in early 1963, thus meaning he could not have been the masked Mr. Sabo. It's also worth noting that these same press clippings in 1965 mention his two Madison Square Garden sellouts from over five years earlier. This adds a little further substance to my belief that they wouldn't have had him wrestling as a masked heel in 1963. If they felt it was worth noting in 1965 that he had sold out the garden several years earlier and this was part of promoting him as a babyface sensation, they would have wanted to do the same thing if they had him back in 1963. Argentina Zuma passed away in December of 2012 in Rancho Cucamonga, California. His obituary states he was married in 1961 and had three sons. Perhaps there was some way I could get my hands on a marriage license and or birth certificates for his children, and depending on the dates and locations, we might be able to answer some questions. John Boucher, my co-host on the Charting the Territories podcast, did some digging on Ancestry.com. He found a record for an Elias Shage, Elias being the name of one of Zuma's three children. Elias had several known addresses in California over the last 25 years, And his most recent known address is in Rancho Cucamonga, where Argentina Zuma passed away. It also lists many of Elias' known relatives, including his father, Manuel Shej. So it's a virtual certainty that this was indeed Zuma's son. John also found a petition for naturalization for Elias, where he requested to become a citizen of the United States in June of 1989. On this petition, Elias listed his date of birth as May 2nd, 1963, and his place of birth as Argentina. So, knowing that he was born in Argentina in May of 1963, is this proof that his father couldn't have been in the U.S. a couple of months earlier? Honestly, no. It's always possible Zuma went back and forth between Argentina and the U.S., or that the family had been in the U.S. and returned to Argentina shortly before Zuma's wife gave birth. But at the very least, it makes it more likely that Zuma was indeed in Argentina during this time. It was time to move on to another source to try and get proof. With Zuma being a Jack Pfeffer creation, that gave me my next direction to go. Pfeffer was notorious for saving all of his files, records, correspondence as it related to pro wrestling, and one of the largest collections of Pfeffer materials is currently stored at the University of Notre Dame in their Rare Books and Special Collections Department. Wrestling journalist David Bixenspan had previously sent me some materials he had gotten from Notre Dame relating to Leroy McGurk, so I did two things. First, I went back through the McGurk materials with a fine-tooth comb, and second, I requested copies of all materials relating to Zuma in the Notre Dame collection. 
The university will actually scan documents for researchers, and they have an incredibly thorough index and finding aid. So I was able to specify exactly which parts of the collection I wanted to see. Starting with what David Bixenspan had already sent me, there were two items of interest. Both were letters sent from Leroy McGurk to Jack Pfeffer in 1960. Argentina Zuma had wrestled for Leroy on a couple of occasions uh, by that point in time, and it appears that Leroy was quite fond of him. On June 11, 1960, Leroy wrote a letter to Jack and wrote, Zuma is a nice little fellow. We were sure sorry to hear of his mother passing on. Three months later, in a letter dated September 14, 1960, Leroy wrote, I haven't heard whether Argentina Zuma has returned to you from South America yet or not. So now we know that Zuma was in South America in 1960, which is when his career record begins a five-year blank period, and the impetus for him to go to South America likely was the passing of his mother. Can we speculate that these factors led to him indeed retiring for a few years? Sure. But is it proof? It is not. But again, it ever so incrementally continues to support my theory that Zuma was not in the U.S., in early 1963. The University of Notre Dame eventually provided me with all the materials I requested, so I eagerly poured through them hoping to find anything that would offer proof of his whereabouts between 1960 and 1965. Pages and pages of press clippings of Zuma over the years were included in the Pfeffer collection, as he seemed to relish in keeping records of all of Zuma's exploits even when he was wrestling for other promoters. These clippings stop in 1960, which is in line with with what's already out there regarding Zuma's career. And if Zuma had indeed been wrestling under a mask as Mr. Zabo or even any other gimmick, it seems likely to me that Jack would have wanted records of that and would have kept records of that. But there were none. So again, while this isn't proof of anything, It's another teeny tiny little notch in the column of evidence supporting Zuma not being Mr. Zabo. After 1960, the only press clippings contained in the Pfeffer files at Notre Dame are two ads from July 1965 when he wrestled for Leroy McGurk. The two ads, one from Tulsa and one from Oklahoma City, are taped to a sheet of paper and on the top of the paper, someone wrote, Zuma back 1965. Also included in the Notre Dame files were pages from a notebook Zuma kept of his booking schedule. For every day he was booked to wrestle somewhere, it lists the name of the city, who he was wrestling against, and who he teamed with, and the amount of this payoff. It has the notebook for 1960, and the week of April 25th to the 30th has him working Monday night in Charlotte, and then the next few nights have the name of the towns crossed out and a note that says, Mother Died. So this seems to indicate that Zuma left the U.S. on very short notice due to the passing of his mother. In addition to the press clippings in the notebook, there was a folder containing correspondence between Argentina Zuma and Jack Pfeffer. Two letters, written in Spanish, were sent from Zuma to Jack. Both of them were sent via airmail, and the envelope from one of them has stamps from Argentina. One was sent in May 1960, and the other in June. Twitter user John Lee volunteered to translate these letters for me. They basically confirmed that Zuma's mother had passed away. In addition, they mentioned that one of Zuma's brothers 
passed away shortly after their mother. The second letter ends with Zuma telling Jack that he doesn't know when he will return to the USA. Also included with the correspondence is a remembrance card, listing his mother as having passed away on April 26, 1960, and his brother Elias having passed on May 19th. If you've been paying attention, you'll recall that Zuma named one of his sons Elias. Now we find that there was perhaps additional meaning to that name. We're slowly but surely getting more and more information about Zuma's life and the circumstances that led to him leaving the U.S. in April 1960. But we still haven't found anything that offers up proof that Zuma was not in the United States in early 1963, wrestling as the masked Mr. Zabo. At the same time I had requested documents from the Pfeffer Collection at Notre Dame, I also made a request to the United States Citizenship and Immigration Services under the Freedom of Information Act, requesting their files on Manuel Chez, a.k.a. Argentina Zuma. Those files were sent to me on Friday, November 5th, just a few days after the files from the Pfeffer Collection came in, Needless to say, I spent most of the next few days poring over everything. Now, there's a lot in Zuma's file from Immigration Services, but there is one document in particular that is as close to a smoking gun as we're going to get. In November 1986, Manuel Chez applied for an immigrant visa. The application included a section asking Zuma to list all the places he resided for six months or more since his 18th birthday. Looking over his response, he lived in Argentina in 1943 through 1952. He then lived in Boston, Massachusetts in 52-53, which was when he first came to the States and wrestled for Tony Santos. He returned to Argentina briefly in 53-54 and again in 55-56, then lived in Dallas, Texas from 1956 through 1959, which lines up with the time he was wrestling mostly out of East Texas. The next line states that he lived in Cordoba, Argentina, from 1960 to 1965. The line after that lists his next residence as Tulsa, Oklahoma, from 1965 to 1968. So, in Argentina Zuma's own words, on an official document submitted to a U.S. government entity, he was living in Argentina from 1960 to 1965. Now, if we really want to play devil's advocate here, we could ask, well, isn't it possible that he came to the U.S. for two months in 1963 to wrestle as Mr. Zabo? And the answer would be yes. However, in looking through all of the files sent to me from Immigration Services, there are records of all his entries into the U.S. at various times, including when he first came to the U.S. in 1952 his returns from Argentina in the mid-50s, and when he returned in 1965. There are no records of him having entered the U.S. in 1963. With all of this information, I can now state to a virtual certainty that Argentina Zuma was not the masked Mr. Zabo. The question remains, how did his name come up in the first place? Did Koji come up with this information himself, or did he find it somewhere else? Months ago, I had asked Tim Hornbaker to ask Koji these questions, but uh, according to Tim, the two haven't communicated since earlier this year, so I haven't been able to get a follow-up response. 
But in my never-ending quest to obtain as much information as possible on this mystery, I did some digging on my own, and I found a newsletter published by Burt Ray. Burt published Matt Mania in the mid-1960s, and this newsletter appears to have been a special edition of that, titled The Life History of Lou Thez. It lists all of Lou's known matches at the time, stretching from February 1935 to January of 1966, so we can speculate it was published shortly after January of 66. In this newsletter, Lou's opponents for the two matches in Tulsa are indeed listed as Argentina Zuma on March 11th and Shandor Zabo on March 25th. So that is almost certainly where Koji got this information from. Now, keep in mind, Koji would have been nine years old in 1966, and in his own words, he first fell in love with wrestling when he was 10, and he first saw Lou Thez wrestle in 1968. In my conversations with Tim, he mentioned that in many cases, Koji and Lou had gone over a list of dates and opponents, with Lou doing his best to recall if the info was accurate. What we don't know is how exactly this process worked as it relates to Zuma. Did Koji have access to records listing both Zuma and Mr. Zabo as possible opponents? Did he ask Lou if it was Zuma under the mask, or did he merely ask if it was Zuma? At this point, we may never know the answer, but we can speculate. If we understand how the Shandor Zabo mistake was made, I can see someone writing down Mr. Zabo and someone down the line just assuming that it was Shandor. The same thing might have happened on March 11th. Somebody might have handwritten results from Tulsa, and maybe they wrote the name Zabo in script. Maybe they left off the S and just wrote Z-A-B-O. And perhaps Bert, reading this, sees Zuma instead of Zabo and considers it as Argentina Zuma. While anything is possible, this is at least a plausible scenario. And just like today, where people copy and paste incorrect info and don't properly vet it, we have a situation where incorrect information lived on for over 50 years. Until now. We know that Mr. Zabo was not Danny Hodge. We know that Mr. Zabo was not Argentina Zuma. And despite my best initial research efforts, we are fairly certain that Mr. Zabo was not Anton Ripper Leone. Next month on Wrestling History Mysteries, in part four of The Curious Case of Mr. Zabo, I will reveal conversations with the only two men still alive that shared a wrestling ring with Mr. Zabo in 1963, and I will unequivocally reveal his identity to the world. Wrestling History Mysteries part of the Charting the Territories podcast feed can be found wherever you get your favorite podcasts and at chartingtheterritories.com.